Welcome to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri, a Beverly Hills-based psychologist, certified sex therapist, and the founder of Modern Intimacy. Thanks for joining me here where I talk about sex, relationships, mental health, and dive into your questions with practical answers and real solutions. Each week, I share insights aimed at helping you build an authentic and healthy relationship with yourself, with others, and with your sexuality. It's time to get naked emotionally, mentally, and on your own time, physically. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. This week, I am speaking with Jamie Mahler, and I'm so excited. Jamie is a New York-based psychotherapist and mental health educator, and she is the brains behind the popular brand Recollected Self on social media. Jamie's therapeutic education on trauma and toxic relationships has gone viral many times on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube with millions of views and likes. In addition to becoming a trusted empathic resource for her many followers, Jamie is a noted mental health contributor for her many followers, and she's been featured in USA Today, NBC News, Parade, and so many more media outlets. Jamie is the author of a brand new book that just came out last week called Toxic Relationship Recovery, Your Guide to Identifying Toxic Partners, Leaving Unhealthy Dynamics, and Healing Emotional Wounds After a Breakup. Jamie's actively engaging in conversations around trauma and healing and toxic relationship dynamics on her social channels, which will be linked here in the show notes. And she specializes in helping survivors of every sexual orientation and gender heal through her practice. Jamie, thanks so much for speaking with me today. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. I've been waiting for this for a while. (laughs) I know. We've had it on the books for a long time. Congratulations on your book being released last week. How does it feel? Thank you. I, it's surreal. It's been a long time coming and you know, they say writing a book is like, you know, birthing a child. And I'm like, I, I, I kind of get the analogy because it is a full on labor of love. And, you know, the delivery date is there. So we're, we're here. We're post due date. We're here. <laughs> Amazing. So you chose to write about toxic relationships and the healing process. I mean, who I don't think I know a person who's not been in a toxic relationship. Would you say that's true for you too? Well, yeah. I mean, because it's funny, the background of this book is that the original pitch for this book was that I really wanted to do relationship archetypes. I wanted one chapter for each type of relationship. I wanted it for partners, families, friendships. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted a workplace section. I wanted a religious section. And then, you know, I love my editors, but they're like, a little too ambitious. Let's uh, stick to one topic. I was like, okay. So yeah, that's what ended up happening is I focused on the partnership relationship. And when you say, has anyone ever not had, like why I can say it with, you know, a fair amount of certainty is that we've all been in relationships and we're all continuing to relate to each other. And so if someone goes, oh yeah, I've only had one or two flings. I've never had a serious partner. I go, I absolutely hear you. And you might not think this book is relevant, but if you have a sibling or a parent or a workplace, like a boss or a supervisor or a coworker, and you're really struggling with trying to figure out what that looks like, go ahead and check out the book anyways, because you're, you're really being spoken directly to there's Mm -hmm. a couple of additions that are specific to 
that partner dynamic, right? The whole sexual dynamic. Yet you can find so many similarities whether or not sex is present. So that, that in and of itself is how I can say that with certainty. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate your framing on that. It does feel like we cannot avoid toxic relationship dynamics because at the end of the day, what really is a toxic relationship? It's a relationship where people are communicating their needs in really indirect ways, right? In intimacy impeding ways. So I think it's important to kind of differentiate. There aren't toxic people, there are toxic behaviors. And so when you... Yeah, when we look at the the toxic behaviors, the behaviors that actually get in the way of you feeling connected, safe, um, integrated with somebody else, these are things that people are trying to do to protect themselves and to secure relationships, but they end up backfiring in these really uncomfortable ways, usually for the person on the other side of the behavior. Would you agree? Right. Think about like, think about the word toxic in and of itself. I get some pushback for this on my socials, uh, mainly because there's a assumption behind that word that I'm immediately attacking the core function of that human person. And my brain, if you know anything about me and the way most therapists have to have incredible sense of nuance, toxic behaviors are needing to be identified. And what I mean by that is, We do not have to throw everybody under the bus, but we do need to identify toxic behaviors. And then we also need to draw accountability within ourselves when we exhibit these behaviors, right? And so I recently just got interviewed um, for the book, but I got interviewed um, by Insider and one of the quotes in there, and I want to share it with your audience because I think it's really powerful, is that the word toxic isn't meant to be a weapon. It's meant to be an awareness. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is an awareness when you are integrating an awareness you are allowing something to be existing at the same time as something that seems completely opposite to it right so if you're like I can't be toxic because I also contribute to my church's charity and I go right two things can be true at the same (laughs) time though and It doesn't even have to be anchored to your identity at all. It's just a perception, right? So when someone goes, I can't call my uh, my boyfriend toxic because he's an amazing dad to my kids. I go, I will agree with you. I bet that dad is shining, is a shining example of how to treat their, you know, children well. And in the same breath, what you just described to me and how they treat you that is allowed to coexist with their good parenting, right? And so this is where that whole language, I was just talking to my partner about this. I said, the reason where I do get a little more passionate about why we need to call things the way they are is because when I don't label something as harmful or we can go to the extreme, the toxic behavior, if I don't label it as such, I am participating in the non-accountability of this person, or I'm participating in my own, what is the word? Is it unaccountable? Whatever the word is, I'm not holding myself accountable for my own behavior. Because if I refuse to say that it's harmful, or if I refuse to say that it's actually causing massive ripples and implications in my life, 
or in the lives of others, then how am I ever going to heal? How am I ever going to heal? And how are they going to heal? Right. Exactly. I think this is a really important distinction, right? Like bleach in and of itself is not a bad substance, but we don't ingest it, right? Because it's toxic to our safety. It's toxic to our sense of well-being and we use it for other purposes. And I think it's a helpful way to think about this language of toxic relationships. It's not that the whole relationship is bad, but there are elements of it that are unsafe and that are contaminating your well-being and contaminating your sense of security with one another. And, and so that I think is the important thing to hone in on. And you and I were talking a little bit before we got started in the interview about how we don't walk around with a billboard that describes all of our toxic behaviors or our indirect behaviors. And so it's hard to notice what is going to become unhealthy in relationships at the start for a couple of reasons, right? We're putting our best foot forward, so is another person, but also we're not as invested. And so there's not as much to lose at the start of a dynamic. So the closer you get to someone and the more you have to lose, the more invested in self-protection you are if you don't feel safe in that relationship dynamic. So I think as we get further along in relationships, whether they're romantic, platonic, sexual, all of the above, that's when we start seeing higher instances of some of these behaviors. So let's identify what are some of the more covert or less easy to spot behaviors that you would identify as toxic. Right. I think when we look at what causes complex trauma and what causes that covert nature of not even knowing that it's happening, right? We, we're going to look at covert behaviors. And I, one of the things I immediately think about is the complexity of weaponizing relationships because it's very hard to see it happening in the actual action of the process, right? We don't know that something's getting weaponized in that moment until what happens, the fallout and the, the workaround and they come back at you and they go, you know, and I'll give you an example. So um, I want to say, I don't know where in the book it is, but I talk about buying lunch for your partner, okay? And there's a word I use in the book called buffers. And people use this term for a bunch of different things. But in the book, in the context of relationships, I'm using the word buffer as a sign to look out for, right? So we're wanting to look out for relationship buffers. What is a relationship buffer? Let's just like wor work it out and you'll, you'll get this more in the book. But the buffer is I'm utilizing something, whether that's a word, a phrase, a affirmation, maybe it's a gift, maybe it's a, um, you know, maybe I go, uh, you know, pick up something for you at the pharmacy, or I never come to one of your open mic nights and I come for I come tonight, right? A buffer is I did that for the sole purpose of weaponizing that against you. Okay. So you got to kind of stay in the train with me. So let's go back to buying lunch. I bought lunch for my partner, but what you don't know and what the coworkers don't know is that the night before we got in an incredibly, very 
intense emotional exchange right before we went to bed. And we never resolved it. Nobody said sorry. Nobody said anything. It was just, we were exhausted and we're like, just put a cap on it. We have to go to bed. Then you wake up the next morning and I wake up and I go, okay, I don't really know how to communicate this. I don't really have any sense of, I don't even really want to say sorry. So in order to keep this relationship going, I'm going to need to create some kind of bypass or some kind of buffer in order to ease this situation out of tension. Okay. So what I do is I grab a burger and some fries on my way to work, you know, and I go by your office and I make sure, I mean, if it's getting really, really harmful and I'm doing this for show, I'm going to make sure people see me drop it off. And, you know, you meet me at the door and you're notably flustered and you're like, what are you doing? You know, you ask me, what are you doing here? And I go, what? I can't buy lunch for my partner anymore. And that, do you hear the, it's a, it's an all or nothing prompt. This is where I'm going to, you know, you're going to learn all this stuff in the book, but it's an all or nothing prompt. I teach people all the time, listen for an all or nothing prompt. What they just did was they said, they are basically framing it as if you don't accept this lunch, then you're going to look ungrateful. You're going to look problematic. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just agreeing with you. It's, right. it's, such a, a, it's a very slick Darvo strategy, right? It's there let, it me, there it is. let me yes. get myself out of the hot seat and put you in the position of having to decide that we are okay in front of this audience, right? Whether or not the person's coworkers are there, they're going to hear about it. They know I brought you lunch. So I look like the great person in all of this. And right. if you don't accept it with adoration, with grace, with gratitude, then you're the bad guy and I get to play the victim. And now you owe me some sort of reparation emotionally. Yes, which is why I framed that in such a word. And and anyone can use, you guys can use whatever words you want to. I just use it to help conceptualize. But the reason I use the word buffer is it's literally trying to buff out something that needs to be noticed, okay? So you actually need to notice that there is an inherent damage to the car, but you just like buffing it out and pretending that it doesn't exist is actually exacerbating the problem underneath. You're not noticing the problem underneath. You need to actually look at the issue and not try to create some kind of like bypassing of the issue. Well, if I'm now the partner that got lunch, this is exactly why I'm glad you spoke to it. So like, I'm going to flip the role play for a second. If I'm the partner that received the lunch, you are absolutely right, Dr. Kate. This is exactly what it is. You are, it's a catch 22. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You fully are. And that is, if I had to, (laughs) if I had to like encapsulate like a feeling of what it is when you're in a toxic relationship, it is that feeling 100% to the T. You are constantly in situations where you are damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So any move you make, you're the bad guy. No matter how much you try to reconcile, no matter how much you try to do, you, any attempt to reconcile, any attempt to process, any attempt for real emotional intimacy now becomes weaponized. And that's what I was trying to get to. If you do the full workaround and you stay on the train with me, now the partner goes, all right, 
you know what? I can, I can hold space. Thank you for thinking of me. I can hold space for both things. Um, this doesn't mean that this dialogue's over. I would like to talk about it more later. And then the partner goes, okay, whatever. And walks away. All right. So later that night I go, you know, like I said, I was genuine. I appreciate you buying some, some food for me. Thank you for doing that. I do also want to reiterate though, that the dialogue that we had yesterday isn't resolved and I'm grateful that you got me lunch. Okay, but this is where the partner comes in and they'll fully, just like you just said, Dr. Kate, they'll 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 pull out every arsenal and they'll go, so why would I ever have incentive to buy you lunch ever again if you're just gonna throw me under the bus like this and make me feel like a terrible person. Okay. All or nothing right off the bat. And they're telling you they don't have the emotional capacity to hold this difficult conversation. That's what they're saying to you. So you need to take that seriously and you need to actually acknowledge that what they were trying to do, their attempt for reconciliation was bypassing. That was their solution. That was their skill set in that experience. And what I mean by skill set, people are like, what do you mean? Are they actually using a skill? And I go, yes, it's a skill to the detriment of the relationship, but it is a skill set that they think is benefiting them. Right. And therefore, they're just hoping it takes and you don't ask any deeper questions. So that's one of them. I mean, obviously there's others, but yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on it because it is one of those concepts people miss. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever find that just as you're trying to fall asleep, your brain suddenly won't stop talking? Do your thoughts start racing right before bed or at inopportune moments? I know it's happened to me, especially when I'm ruminating about a problem in a relationship. It turns out one great way to make those racing thoughts go away is to talk them through. Therapy gives you a place to do just that so you can get out of your negative thought cycles and find some mental and emotional peace. Going to therapy has been one of the best decisions I've ever made for my personal well-being, and it's one of the reasons I decided to become a therapist. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designated to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. You can get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash get naked today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash get naked. I think one of the things about intimacy that is so hard is that intimacy requires conflict and conflict management effectively. So when somebody's engaging in these kinds of indirect behaviors, it is usually a strategy for self-protection, not always because they're trying to dump the, the problem into their partner's lap, but to your point, they don't have the skills or the capacity to really process that conflict in a way that really is constructive. It feels too psychically threatening for them. So they go into a place of, let me just make it all better with something shiny, right? We could think about this as a form of love bombing too. I'm just going to distract with something shiny. And if you take it, you accept it, then psychically, okay, I'm okay. They're okay. The relationship is okay. We can move on. But what that does is it hot potatoes, all of the emotional labor into the lap of the other person. And they're just sitting there with this unfinished business because their partner doesn't have the capacity to hold it, to manage it, to sit with it, 
because they're deathly afraid on some level of what it means to be in conflict. Maybe they're afraid of rejection. Maybe they're afraid of abandonment. Maybe they're afraid of some sort of psychological annihilation. All of those things could be possible underneath their their consciousness. So consciously, it just looks like I did a good thing and you don't respect that or you don't accept it. So you're the bad guy now. And then I don't have to feel the shame or the guilt. That's on you because you didn't accept my mea culpa. Yes. I mean, I also, I was working on this concept with, um, so this is a pretty complex topic. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is when you start seeing this in the lived reality, so like, obviously I'm a therapist, I also do coaching and I work with a bunch of different people in different ways. But when you start looking at this in the grand scheme of things, one of the things that you're going to point out, so thematically, you're going to realize that there's an inherent need for psychoeducation and language development. We need a taxonomy mm-hmm. of the language of mental health of engagement, of interaction, of relationship, um, terminology. What is codependency? Can you identify it? Can you describe it? What do you think it is? Right? Let's, let's use shared terminology. So there's an entire subset of people that don't have that right off the bat. And that's not even just people who are more harmful. That's main, that's many, that's a general population that doesn't get access to that type of knowledge. And yes, we are exposed to our followers that immerse themselves into that all the time, but that's an entire subset of people. I'm talking about the general public that doesn't know the difference between codependence, codependency and interdependency, which does get talked about in the book. And for some terms, for some therapists, that term is new to them. What is interdependency? How do I teach my client how to be interdependent, right? And I go, right, because we are just scratching the surface of relationship terminology, and we don't even have a shared collective understanding of it. So that is the complexity of that. So my hope for the book is to create the terminology. If it's already there, then just anchor it down, use the terms that other clinicians are already using. I have like an analogy for complex trauma. I have a bunch of different things for people to help understand the like baseline psycho ed part of relationship dynamics. Yet one of the things that I would say, going back to our example is, um, especially for your listeners, one of the things that I would say is you, when we're trying to understand how to have conversations that have conflict inside of them. And I love that you said that so eloquently that intimacy develops from those places, Mm -hmm. right? So if we can't have those dialogues, we're inherently starting off with a lack of intimacy. Okay. So that is very, that's a critical point right there. Mm -hmm. And I usually, I explain it this way. I say, listen, You have to be aware of who you're talking to and the environment you're speaking into, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you are talking to someone that's fully emotionally numb, think about this for a second. This is one of the things that a lot of the folks I work with, they they have to come to terms with. If your partner, your parent, your boss is so detached from the emotional experience and they are fully numbed, fully numbed. Your journeying, even your your personal, not even inviting them in, you journeying into the emotional landscape and asking them or inviting them into it is automatically going to create a dissonance. Because they're going to see what you're doing as irrelevant. 
I don't need to feel those things. Why reflect on that? Why do we have to have this conversation? What do you mean she hurt your feelings? I just roll it off. I don't think about that stuff ever again. And I go, okay, there's a difference between emotional processing and emotional numbing. And when your partner isn't emotional processing, but only emotionally numbing, and then you try to have a dialogue where you're inviting them to emotionally process, that right off the bat is going to be the biggest, like think about the moment of contention because this is what I hear from most people. They go, I'm just, oh, I'm invalidated. I'm dismissed. I'm ignored. I'm unheard. I go, hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad you're bringing this up because that's the capacity piece. That's the skill piece. If somebody's main strategy is to disconnect from their emotions and kind of numb themselves, another way that we might think about this is if they're a bit alexithymic, right? They have a difficult time identifying, naming, and communicating their emotions. They still feel them, but they don't know how to work with them, right? So they sure. they just psychically like cut themselves off from it when it does arise in their bodies. So even just bringing your emotions to somebody who's in that state can feel like a threat. It can mm-hmm. feel like you're in conflict with each other, even though you're trying to be seen and heard. And it doesn't make it okay, right? This is a huge impediment in relationships because when you can't have those conversations, yeah, one partner feels dismissed and the other person feels attacked. And like, there you are in a stalemate. And it's so hard for both partners. Sure, sure. And I like that you're speaking to the person on the other side, because yes, there is absolutely alexithymia, which is I'm struggling to identify my emotions. And then we also have many people that have spent decades actually like either physically numbing something like so you never see them and I and I mean I have people in my life that I never see them sober and people are like do you know a lot of people with alcoholism I go no they're just always like sedated in some way they're either on clonopin or they're on and I'm not against psych drugs but like when you're constantly sedated or like when you're constantly on like um a sedative like even cannabis, like if you're constantly on something and someone goes, I don't even know how to like touch the emotion. I go, right. I mean, you can speak to me. I share my story sometimes. Like I spent a long time in that numb space. Like Mm -hmm. I would be numbing it with either substances or then eventually psych got in, like psych came in and I was doing like not doing, but I was getting prescribed a lot of benzos. And I look back at that time and I couldn't even grasp some of the emotions because I didn't have access to them. I'm serious. I didn't have access to them. And so this is a really painful thing for people to hear too, because some people are like, no, I don't alter. I don't take anything, but my partner never is available to me or even physically accessible to me. And I go, right. If they spend the majority of their time altered, how are they going to tap into that emotional space? Right, exactly. Like what what I'm hearing is that when we are more conscious, right, which is not possible if you're in an altered state, whether it's from chemical alteration or a behavioral alteration, right? Swiping all the time or constantly on your screen or other compulsive behaviors can accomplish the same kind of checking out or numbing out. And so like that does really get in the way of us being able to hold space for our own process and then to communicate that effectively with another person, 
which again throws up a big brick wall in terms of intimacy and also conflict resolution. And it brings me to a conversation you and I were having before we jumped into this this conversation. We were talking about kind of the cornerstone of toxic relationships being a loss of self. And mm-hmm. when when people get into these toxic dynamics or codependent dynamics, there's such a blurring of the lines of mm-hmm. who they are, right? There's a loss of identity that can occur. So they stop being a me when they start becoming a we. And this is, I think, the cornerstone of what your book talks about. Mm-hmm. Healing from a toxic relationship, whether you stay in it or leave, is yeah. about reclaiming yourself and being yes. able to be present with yourself so that you can sustain that interdependence. Because codependence is, I don't know where I stop and you start, yep. right? But interdependences, we are both individuals and we are overlapping in this relationship in a way that creates a space that is unique to us in this relationship, but also preserves who we are as individuals. And I think that's the sweet spot to hone in on. So in your book, you talk about uh, an acronym called OASIS for people to think about in terms of how they start conceptualizing what it means to heal. So let's break down what OASIS stands for and how people can kind of use that as a shorthand to evaluate how well they're taking care of themselves in relationship. I'm so excited about this concept because this model has been kind of in me for a long time and I've slowly been able to like put language to it. So the OASIS model is actually not meant to be just in one particular framework. It doesn't have to occur just in therapy or just in, it's literally just a call to action within the self. It's literally just an acronym for you to remember how to anchor into yourself while adding the collective in your healing. Okay. So what I mean by that is how do you not get lost in relationships? How do you not get lost in your trauma? How do you not get lost in the process of recovery? And many times people are like, well, you know, I have a mantra or I have an affirmation or I go to my mentor and all of those things are beautiful things, beautiful, beautiful things. Yet what the reason that I find so much passion in this work is when we try to solve the wrong problem, we are looking for like the wrong, like we're basically think about it like this. When we aim for the wrong destination, every step we take is a step in the wrong direction. Think about it like that. Okay. So the Oasis model is meant to actually give you a anchoring, almost like a guide that's next to you that's like talking you through and being like, hey, you took this step. Um, is this the direction you want to take? Is this going to lead us to a healthier relationship with ourselves or a relationship with others? Oh, wait, because the model helps us with a guide, we can kind of make decisions accordingly, right? Okay, so let's go through the acronym. The O is for ownership of self. So this is just shorthand for self-ownership, okay? So self-ownership is a pretty complex thing in the book, and I'll go over this briefly. But ownership means you're going to own how you show up to a dynamic, and then you're also going to advocate 
for the relevancy or validation behind that pain. So ownership means I'm going to own that I have ADHD. I'm not going to define it as my identity, but I'm going to own that I have sensory issues. I'm not going to pretend they don't exist. I'm not going to create resistance. I'm not going to hurt myself by telling myself that that's not how my body shows up. And that's a real thing about me. I have a lot of sensory needs. And so in order to not reject the self, I own that, but I don't embody and identify as it. Does that make sense? So I'm not the, I'm not the quirky girl that has to turn the lights down low. I'm literally seeing it as legitimate and I'm validating it inside of me. So I don't, I don't treat it poorly. I treat it with honor and Mm -hmm. I go, that's reasonable to advocate for. So it's about personal accountability and not dismissing yourself, right? It's really about honoring the, the gestalt or the totality of who you are and, and making no apology for it, but also not using it as an excuse. Is what there I mean. you go. Because think about ownership as, and this does happen in mental health, and we do have to be wary of it, that some people latch onto a diagnosis and then they use it for every single thing that goes wrong. So, and I know that that sounds very callous, but in reality, we can have these issues and hold ourselves accountable for healing through those issues, right? So what does the A stand for if we're moving from so, ownership to- Yeah, I want to <laughs> I want to make sure we, I'm going to try to not get hung up forever, but yes, <laughs> A is authenticity. A is authenticity. And that really, like, of course, that could be in a whole episode, but authenticity is about radical honesty, folks. Yeah. Like, I can't heal- if I'm not honoring that I'm actually in pain, okay? So if my partner is emotionally or physically abusive or I'm miserable and I'm showing up with those harmful traits, authenticity looks like having a very real conversation. So let's say your partner's being abusive to you in the emotional space, okay? it Authenticity looks like what is really actually happening in reality without me creating a bunch of flowery language without me being like oh they're always like that (laughs) without using humor I'm honest and I'm showing up and I'm saying this is the reality of the situation and then going into the self if we're doing the recovery part of authenticity you're asking yourself how did I get so detached from my authentic truth? Mm. How did I miss out that I was miserable for the past 10 years? Mm -hmm. What signs did I ignore? What parts of me did I diminish? And most of those, let me tell you, were probably because you were weaponized to, you were outright asked to reject parts of yourself. And many people agree and they do reject parts of themselves. If you have a hobby and your partner actually says, I need you to not smell like manure. Okay, let's validate that for a second. But you need to have an honoring conversation of both parties and go, okay, how can we work through this without it becoming weaponized against me? Because if you're going to be passive aggressive and being like, oh my God, who let the cows out when when I come home from the stables? Mm-hmm. That's a harmful dynamic. What I hear is that we uh, we have to kind of 
think about is my authenticity is somebody trying to snuff out my authenticity with their requests or are we in a place where we are negotiating so that we both get enough of what we need in in the situation where we might have competing interests and that's really the defining hallmark of a healthy relationship is are we looking out for each other's best interests as much as our own and negotiating for a win-win or is somebody trying to control me and take away right. everything that is important to me so that they can be 100% or mostly maintained or satisfied? And that's that's not a healthy right. dynamic. And that, that, that exactly, that leads us to self-sovereignty, which is S, the S, the middle S of Oasis. And self-sovereignty is actually about this radical notion that you are the authority over your life. You are the authority over your life. You are the person that has the ability to call the shots mm. for what you want out of your life. And people go, how does that work with a partnership? And exactly that example you just brought up, Kate, is think about it like this. Self-sovereignty is not power over anyone. Right. It's power over the self. It is embodying your own individual authentic self. And so self-sovereignty in that situation would be like, so I hear that you're upset about the stables. So I'm planning on going two times a month. What I'm hoping us to establish is that this is a hobby that I care dearly of. I understand that I'm not going to be able to probably keep it up as frequently as I did when I was single. And it is something that I highly value. And it's been part of my life for 20 years. So I need you to understand, because think about it, the sovereignty is I'm coming from a place of my known self is so identified that I can say that with certainty, Mm -hmm. that I'm not willing to completely change who I am and stop loving horses because you don't like the smell of manure. Again, a healthy partnership is one where you get to have individual interests and needs and, and activities, even if your partner thinks it's weird or dumb or smells funny and it, you know, is uh, aversive to their, their nervous system for whatever reason. And then the, the goal is how do you negotiate that? So those two times a month, a self-sovereign person would say, this is really important to me. I appreciate that the smell is an olfactory assault for you. And at the same time, maybe go do one of your hobbies and, And to be home after I'm home so that I can take a shower and wash my clothes and you never have to smell a scent, right? Like this is a negotiation. Yeah. And that's why I said we're two adults and the people that are actually able to have these kind of conversations, the ones that are developing the skills around these conversations, you'd be surprised that a conversation like this, like if you're right, if you're a listener and you're going, man, how would I deal with that? Because I grew up, if I grew up for doing horses for 20 years and my partner was like, don't do it. How would I navigate that conversation? And I go, you're right, because you are going to come across these like very at, like they're going to be distinct dissonant points that are opportunities for you to figure out how to come to a like a reconciled place without being passive aggressive about it right Right. so when partner agrees to two times a month and you go oh yeah that's when I go bowling anyway so 
And yeah, the bowling alley kind of smells stale too when I come home. So I guess I hear what you're saying. Why don't we just have that on the same night and then we'll take a shower and then we'll, you know, be all clean together and maybe we'll have sex later or something. That's fun or whatever. And maybe it's an opportunity for you guys to get closer. Maybe it's something to look forward to that night because you both know you're going to be super clean and all ready. And, you know, maybe it'll be something fun to look forward to because when two adults are able to navigate you can actually turn something like that into an opportunity to get into more intimate with each other. Right. Well, it doesn't have to be a threat to your own identity or to the relationship if your partner likes something different than you do yes. and wants to prioritize that in a securely functioning relationship, but toxic relationships are not secure. So this is why it feels like such a big threat. Okay. So we have the O, the A, and the S. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have the I, which is interdependency and interdependency is it's so funny I talk about this in the book I go listen the word dependency doesn't need to be a bad word we just misunderstand what that is right so interdependency is we you know you probably got this I don't know if Kate's mentioned it before but in interdependent relationships what you're really acknowledging is there is a collective energy that is being fueled and there's an individual energy that's being fueled and then there's the coming together and trying to negotiate those two terms, okay? So interdependency looks like, I, I use the example of like a flower outside, right? A flower is a flower, right? It's an independent sourced thing where one dandelion pops up and I go, that's one flower, right? And I'm like, cool. So I can acknowledge that that's an individual functioning flower and it's in an interdependent network because in order for that flower to thrive, it needed groundhog free soil. It needed sun. It needed water access. It needed the breeze to kind of strengthen its roots. It needed all of these things to thrive. Mm. And that's where I think a lot of the toxic relationship narratives miss this point where my goal is to not make you single miserable and staring at a wall. I want you to be well fucked. I want you to be like, have like great, like joys in your life. I want you to be seen. I want you to be heard. I want you to have a community and it's possible. Mm -hmm. Listen, it's possible in interdependent systems. Yes. This is the cons this is the consciousness that we are missing out on because when we frame it as I'm either stuck like glue to my partner and can't figure out who I am because I'm so integrated and I don't know where I begin and where I end, that's codependent language. That's mm -hmm. codependent thinking. Interdependent thinking goes, okay, I don't agree with like, I don't love the idea of like smelling like manure. I don't agree with like, you know like the whole horse thing. And it doesn't matter because it makes my partner happy and I'm willing to explore options around that activity because right. I don't own them. Right. And I see them as a functioning independent source of care and love and belonging in and of themselves. They are just an independent person that we both agreed that we were going to figure out how to do life together. Right. That is what interdependency is. So when you can use that as an anchor to your healing, this is why it made it into the Oasis model. Because the word Oasis is not an accident here, folks. It is about you being the source 
of your own conviction and your own truth. Okay, so the last one, the last one is self-advocacy. And the reason why self-advocacy is the last one is it's actually more of a collective of the the four. Mm. The reason why self-advocacy is there is because in every single element of Oasis, in order to reach like a very depth, like deep part of your processing, you have to acknowledge that some of your healing is going to be begging you to create more self-advocacy skills. And what I mean by that is you have to validate your pain in self-ownership. In authenticity, you have to advocate that you like purple and nobody else likes purple. You have to start advocating for your authentic expression of self. You like purple hair? That's great. Nobody has to agree with you, but you have to advocate that it's valid, that you really are enjoying it. And you also have to validate, hey, I don't like it anymore. And just advocate for that as well. And then we go to then we go into uh self-sovereignty and advocating inside. Oh my god. Self-sovereignty is probably one of the biggest things that you're gonna see advocacy coming in. And then interdependency is now you're advocating for it not turning into codependency. When you start seeing your relationship show signs that it's leaning into, oh, um, I I can't do that. Can you, you know, you see the signs of codependency. That advocacy is, hey, I just need you to understand, like, I can't be available for you 24 seven. I know that you trust me. I know that I'm emotionally safe, but it feels like I'm turning into like a therapeutic, like space for you. And that's advocating actually for yourself. People think of it as just like an assertiveness skill. And I go, no, you're advocating for yourself to remain in an, in like an integrity of self. You're advocating for integrity. So here's my takeaway. When someone finds themselves in a relationship where they are constantly exhausted by the relationship, right? It's a, it's an unhealthy relationship dynamic for them the core element of healing is a return to themselves and the ownership of self, the authenticity that they feel, their um, self-sovereignty, their interdependency, and then advocacy of all of those other four realms. So this is the way to get to a healthy relationship in which you are well fucked. Yes, I love it. (laughs) That is a beautiful summary. (laughs) (laughs) Love this. Well, thank you, Jamie, so much for coming and talking about your new model and your book. I I hope everyone picks it up. Even if you feel like, wow, I've done the work. I know all about toxic relationships. I'm a huge fan of reading and rereading things about this because we can always benefit from learning about these dynamics from a different lens and a different voice. Um, So Jamie, thank you. Where can folks reach you if they want to learn more about your work or they want to interact with you? Right. So you can find me on all socials. Uh, I'm at Recollected Self, one word, no space in between. And then you can go to recollectedself.com. You can check out my podcast, which is Unlearned that way. You know, not that we got to take any listeners or not, but we should, we probably have a similar listenership. So I do a lot of trauma recovery. Yeah. So there's a lot of cool things over there. 
Um, and then, yeah, just check out any of the links that I have. You'll find all the up-to-date stuff. And the book's out now, so pick up the book. It's at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's on Simon & Schuster's website. So <laughs> you can find it anywhere. Amazing. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I wish you all the best with your book and, and in your process around it and the success. And uh, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. Stay connected with me on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Kate Balistrary. Everyone has questions and I want to answer as many as I can. So feel free to email your questions to question at getnakedpodcast.com. If you're looking for a free 30-minute consultation with me or someone on my team, visit modernintimacy.com. And don't forget to join our newsletter, Modern Intimacy, on Substack. Let's meet back here next week. A new episode drops every Tuesday. Disclaimer, this podcast is not a substitute for therapy and does not constitute a professional relationship with Dr. Kate Balistrieri or Modern Intimacy. This podcast is strictly for education and entertainment purposes only. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.